Okay, here we go with episode 533 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show by playing a little bit of music like we always do. This week we are playing a song from the band The Kingarulas. They are based out of Brazil. The song is called Gimme Gamma Ray. It's from their EP release, Dr. Gory is a Tiki. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to their Bandcamp page, which is kingargulas.bandcamp.com. That is spelled K-I-N-G-A-R-G-O-O-L-A-S. Go check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. This week, we have the return of somebody who's not been on the show in quite some time. It's author Micah Harris, and we're going to be talking about a movie that up until the day we actually recorded that conversation, I had never seen before. It's 1932's Dr. X. It's a pretty cool film. Got a lot of firsts, got a lot of connections to a lot of other things, and you can see where things were. You know what? It's just a fun conversation that I had with Micah. We talk a lot about film preservation and looking for like alternate versions of films, and you know, it's just a good time. Of course, we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and this time around, Famous Monsters actually spoiled the big reveal of Dr. X. So when you go into Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, just be aware that you're about to get spoiled about the movie. I'll play Dracula's Warning, of course, as well. Before that, we have Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. Big shout out to Mark and his son, Andy. Andy is uh, moving away and moving on. And uh, you know what? That's awesome. Andy's a cool guy. I've met him briefly in passing at various monster batches. And, well, I've listened to him for years when he was podcasting with his father. And it's just exciting to know that he's... Uh, going to be interning on some film production stuff. How cool is that? Anyway, we're going to get to all of that right now. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please, come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hey, kids! Woo! Looky what I got for you! A free Rasputin beard as you enter the theater to shiver at the greatest double scare pair anywhere. Rasputin the Mad Monk. <coughs> and the Reptile. Both in color from 20th Century Fox. Look out, Street! Here they come! Thank <laughs> you. 
Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. To this point, Ultraman has faced many foes of extraterrestrial origin, but what happens when he meets an interdimensional opponent? It just might seem like A Passport to Infinity, which happens to be the title of the 17th episode of Subaraya Productions' Smash TV hit. Caucasian explorer Mr. Yesterday returns to Japan with an anomalous meteorite, which under examination springs to a kind of life and causes the collector to vanish. Arashi and Ide call on yesterday's assistant, Yoko Fuji, who informs them that the meteorite disappeared along with its discoverer. But within moments, the ground trembles and yesterday is returned, while the meteorite streaks away. Yesterday is convinced that the object is after his friend, Mr. Fukui, with whom he left another of the meteorites obtained in the barren desert. The science patrol learns, too late, that the two meteorites should never be brought together, for when the two space rocks are stored in the same container, they combine into a kaiju-sized life form named Bolton, who can manipulate objects and time in the fourth dimension. Bolton is bent on wreaking havoc, and its ability to scramble Ultraman's attacks and distort reality itself seems like an invincible combination. With his screenplay for Passport to Infinity, writer Kaisuke Fujikawa appears to have fashioned an homage to the days of Ultra Q, in which a faceless enemy with no known motive brings about unbalance and destruction. However, Bolton's lack of personality makes it seem less dynamic than other Ultraman villains, looking like a cross between a satellite and an artificial heart. By now, viewers were used to the belligerent Baltan, the pathos of Pigmon, and the menace of marauding alien mummies. So the fact that Bolton is more object than character, while experimental, is a bit of a letdown. In perhaps the most satisfying element of the story, Hoshino, who early on is shooed away by Fuji, conducts his own investigation, which ultimately leads him to a very handsome reward. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece, The Killer Shrews. This is Colossus, the voice of world control. Obey me and live, or disobey and die. This is the dawning of the age of... Colossus, the Forbin Project. A shocker fascinating, says the New York Daily News. A sizzler builds to high tension. Gene Shalit, NBC Radio Monitor. Razzle-dazzle, smooth suspense, Time Magazine. Colossus, the Forbin Project. From Universal, rated GP, all ages admitted. Look! It's coming! What is this? Where did it come from? Monster attack San Francisco. 
Golden Gate Bridge ripped from towers. Skyscrapers topple. Our city may be next. See Columbia Pictures. It came from beneath the sea. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, Derek and his guests are talking about Dr. X from 1932. In Monster World 1, also known as Famous Monster 70, which came out in November of 1964, we see this brief mention of the film in an article about star Lionel Atwill. Dr. X was not an open and shut story without actually pointing the finger of suspicion in all directions, as is done so often. The discovery of the madman behind the crimes committed during a full moon was kept a secret until a closing sequence. It is a production that almost makes Frankenstein seem tame and friendly, said New York Times critic Mordant Hall. The way in which suspicion was handled lifted the picture out of the ordinary, and at the right moment, Lee Taylor, a newspaper reporter, always turned up to furnish some excellent comedy. Imagine this guy lighting a cigar, given to him by a practical joker, at the moment a pair of clutching hands, at wills, approached him from behind. The cigar explodes, and the owner of the pair of hands disappears without the reporter realizing that his end was so close. The production was very well staged, with laboratories that were made more interesting through the splashes of color. So well accepted by the audiences was a technicolor effect, in fact that Warner Brothers made a point of using it also in their next horror film, in which Atwill starred one year later. Later on, in Monster World 8, also known as FM 77, from May of 1966, we find Dr. X featured on the cover. Inside, there is a film book, which is eight pages long with eight photos. It gives a detailed synopsis of the film, including actual dialogue. Let's listen to how the famous transformation scene was described. Dr. Wells, the man with but one hand, activates the machinery in the control booth outside the main lab, then does an astonishing thing. He creeps down the hall to a seldom-used laboratory. There, the full moon shines through a window in the darkness. As the lunar rays envelop Wells, a horrible transformation comes over him. His face twitches, twists, becomes diabolical. Synthetic flesh, he growls. From behind a secret panel, he produces a human hand and fits it to the stump in his sleeve. Stealing himself against the voltage, he violently thrusts the stump of his arm and the unattached hand into the river of crackling electricity. 
A blazing, searing brilliance consumes them both. Wells trembles with the unadulterated agony of electricity pulsating through his body almost beyond human endurance, and he clenches his teeth together to stifle a scream. The crackling arc is welding the inanimate flesh to Wells' arm. He withdraws his arm from the stream of white fire and looks down at it. With his mental command, the fingers flex and bend, and the hand functions as a living part of his body, on which is a bat of the very material from which the hand was fashioned, synthetic flesh. Peering into the mirror image of his face, he dips his hands into the molten substance and applies it to his face to alter his appearance. Within moments, he has become a monster, the moon killer. His ordinarily ordinary face is transformed into that of a hideous creature, a living gargoyle of twisted flesh, with pointed head and satanic expression, with a jagged profile to set Mr. Hyde to shame, and with a gruesome exterior, yet not so horrendous as the cannibalistic bloodlust that therein dwells. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week for MKR. This is Kenny saying adios. It's been a while since I've had this voice on the show, but, you know, he's been back in the show for a long time, and I love having him back on to talk about, well, many different types of movies. <laughs> uh, welcome back to the show, author Micah Harris. How you doing, man? Hey, Derek. It's good to be back, buddy. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we've actually even chatted. I know we communicate on Facebook or whatever, but we actually haven't spoken to each other in a long time. What's new with you? Well, I'm finishing up the trilogy that I was writing the last time we talked. Uh, I think sometime in 2005. No, I'm just—it wasn't that quite that far back. No, it was just uh, <laughs> just a couple years ago. Uh, last Monster Bash, mm -hmm. I was working on uh, an epic fantasy then called uh, Portrait of a Snow Queen, and uh, I did get it out that year. And it was very long in that initial volume, so I went back and divided it into two. I saw that essentially I had two books there, uh, you know, that it could be broken up. So I, I did that end of last year. Since then, I've been working on what was going to be the second book in a duology, but now it's the third book in a trilogy. I'm finishing that up this week, it looks like, finally. I tell you, I started it in a different time in a different world <laughs> that I'm finishing it in. So much has changed in just, you know, five years. And we're currently wrapping that up. I'm, I'm very excited about it. With this book, are you going to independently publish it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's published by my uh, small press, Minor Profit Press. That's what I did my um, Eldridge New Adventures of Becky Sharp book, uh, which came out in a new edition last year. I've, I've had my finger in different pies while I've been, you know, finishing this book. I've been repackaging and uh, doing new editions. I'm very proud of the new Becky Sharp edition. Of course, it's got Eldridge in the title, so it has Lovecraftian elements for sure. Got some very nice uh, art in there, some new art by an artist named M. Wayne Miller. The original artist, Lawson Wallace, was back. He had some new pieces. But yeah, the new edition was out, new art, some new extra features, and you know, I was very tickled about that. But yeah, Minor Profit Press... That's what's putting out my Witches of Winter trilogy. The first one is Portrait of a Snow Queen. Uh, the second one is Portrait of a Winter Court. And the third is Portrait of War, Ice, and Dragons. 
Right on. Well, it sounds like you've been keeping busy, keeping writing and still creating, which I love to hear. It's inspiring to see, you know, my friends and, and my colleagues and, and all that continuing to do the work. And it's just awesome to hear. So that's fantastic, man. Thanks. But we're not here to talk about writing only. I mean, I could sit here and talk about writing for hours. I mean, it's, it's something I do. It's one of my favorite subjects, but we got some other things to talk about. And before we get to it, you want to play around with the Classic Five? The Classic Five! <laughs> all right, well, the Classic Five, for listeners who don't know, is a game that we play on Monster Kid Radio with all of our guests and our friends. I'm going to draw five cards from a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards says a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? It's not a trivia game. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get Monster Kids talking about their favorite topic, monster movies. Micah, are you ready to play? I'm ready. Card number one, which movie do you prefer? Night of the Living Dead or Carnival of Souls? Oh, Night of the Living Dead, definitely. Welcome to a night of total terror. <coughs> night of the Living Dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. More shattering than your strangest nightmare. Yeah, I'm not a Carnival of Souls fan. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do like that weird scene out in that abandoned resort in the desert and probably the scene there where she starts playing the organ music and the guy runs her out of the church. And But, you know, to me, that one is almost painful. It's like a Twilight Zone episode that goes on too long. You know, it's like, lady, you're dead. <laughs> just, just, just stop. <laughs> Hang it up already. You know, so yeah, that's not that uh, you know difficult for me at all. all right. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. You know, I'm not a big zombie fan. You know, just to you know, because ah, oh, zombies, I'm there. You know, kind of thing. But you know, I really do like Night of the Living Dead. You know that that's you know that's an incredible. I had nightmares about that movie before I ever saw it. As a kid. Oh, it's a classic, man. It's a bonafide classic, no doubt. All right, card number two. What classic monster movie is a must-watch on Halloween? A must-watch on Halloween? I would say, if only for the first five minutes, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Ooh. Because of that graveyard set, man. man. And that whole scene where those idiots decide they're going to grave rob the corpse of the Wolfman. Uh, I've said it before on the show, and, and I don't think I've said it in a long time, so I'm going to say it again. Even though we were just talking about zombie movies a second ago, uh -huh. for my money, that opening scene is the best dead body coming back to life scene ever. Yeah, that, that that's, oh, yeah, that is, that is creepy. Yeah, and, what, and what gets you is the fact that his fingernails have grown out. Mm -hmm. it, you know, that little detail and just that hand moving you know just yeah but in terms of getting you in the mood for halloween i mean that set you know with the wind blowing and uh the trees and the tombstones and the, oh yeah it's it's great i wish i had it in my backyard 
You know, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great? I tell you another great one is in, it's not technically a horror movie, uh, but arsenic and old lace, that one at the very beginning, I mean, there's a graveyard or something about that movie at the beginning just feels really Halloween to me. That's, uh, I would say, yeah, for Halloween, yeah, check, you know, that out. And if I could add a bonus to that for, sure. I just thought about it, uh, Brides of Dracula, uh, the, the Hammer film. That interesting choice. Yeah, there's something about just that title card at the beginning with the castle and the lettering, you know, and just even the makeup on the the girl who comes out of the you know, comes out of the ground, you know, that they open the woman saying, mm-hmm. "Come out, my lovely," you know, <laughs> stuff, and it opens up. You can tell. I mean, you know, her, she's got that pale face. It's just perfect. You know, it's obviously artificial, but something about that is is effective to me. It it, it adds to its appeal and its charm, and that is something about that. It just it just feels like candy corn to me. You know. <laughs> like, like I, hey. I, I want my candy corn and my three musketeer bars, you know, in front of the TV with uh, brides of Dracula <laughs> and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and that's there Halloween. You go. That's Halloween. I know I'm going to be watching this Halloween to get me in the mood. There you go. Yeah. All right. All right. Card number three. Which movie do you prefer, Hunchback of Notre Dame or Phantom of the Opera? Wow, I'm not a fan of big a fan of either of those. Uh, yeah, that's right. And there's so many versions. I assume we're not talking about the Disney Hunchback, right? Uh, no, no, okay. Yeah, silent yeah, films, just, the silent films. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Because <laughs> the Disney Hunchback is actually one of their more adult movies for you know animated films for for cartoons as, as far as that mm-hmm. goes. But as far as the silent movies, well, you know, in that case, I mean, between the two, I like the character of the Phantom, you know, a lot more. Uh, okay. I certainly do admire. Cheney's makeup, you know, in, in both of those. And I just like, I just like the whole general concept of the Phantom of the, the opera better. Yeah. Between those two. Fair enough. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> what movie do you prefer? The giant claw or reptilicus? <laughs> uh, okay. The giant claw of reptilicus, which do I prefer? <laughs> well, wow. you know, I actually have a little sentimental value to Reptilicus. Okay. Believe it or not, dude, I can remember over half a century the first time I saw Reptilicus. You know, and I remember there was a guy there. uh, He and his wife were visiting, and I remember him laughing. You know, they got like the – who was that guy working in the laboratory? He He was not the whole thing was he was stupid, you know, <laughs> that's where the humor came from. Uh, he was like, you know, the Norway's Jeff Bodine, you know, from the Beverly Hillbillies, Norway style. Uh, and, but he says, you know, they say something like he's in the laboratory and apparently, you know, he's just off the farm or something. And they go, and this is an electric eel. And the guy's like, everything's electric here. You know, and I remember the guy who was standing just laughing, you know, with us. And, but yeah, I got, I got a little, you know, kind of an emotional attachment of, of Reptilicus. And of course, you know, another great musical number, Tivoli Nights, <laughs> what a sight, you know, or whatever is in it. Uh, did Denmark's Chamber of Commerce uh, help uh, uh, finance Reptilicus? Because there's that moment in the movie, you know, where oh, the leech, is, yeah, the leech is like, 
ah, this is it's a lot of hard work chasing this monster down. Let's go see Denmark, you know, <laughs> and they just drive around town and you see the little mermaid fountain, you know, and then they end up at that place that was the inspiration for Disney making Disneyland over there mm-hmm. and uh and you know and we have a musical number and then we get back to the monster however i do bear reptilicus a grudge when i was a kid you know three or four channels and i want to see godzilla movies so badly <laughs> and to i mean this is how desperate i was man this is the, mm-hmm. the crumbs man we would get the tv guide and there was a channel they would list, but we couldn't get. And every Saturday, they would show a Godzilla movie. You know, so I'm just like, you know, looking at the little paragraph description of what I can't see. And yet, we did get Reptilicus. And to make it worse, on Gomer Pyle, or the Beverly Hillbillies or something, it was a Gomer Pyle. They were talking about Godzilla. You know, we're going to see a Godzilla movie because Godzilla was topical, apparently, in popular culture. But when they actually showed them the theater, they were watching Reptilicus. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) You can't give me, you know, five seconds of Godzilla in a Gomer Pyle episode. You know, I got to see Reptilicus again, you know. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, I do. I am I am fond of the giant claw, as as, as wacky as, as that is. But I guess I'm going to have to go with uh, with Reptilicus. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go around. <laughs> Today was like any other. The hum of daily activity until Reptilicus. A beast born 50 million years out of time, spreading terror in its path, destruction in its wake, towering over the cities of the world. Reptilicus. Invincible, indestructible. Reptilicus. In color from American International. Even after you see it, you won't believe it. Reptilicus. Which of these two movies do you prefer? The Haunted Palace or Die Monster Die? Die Monster Die. Ah, you know. I mean, just first of all, what a great title, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. the pulp of that title. And I've got a, a bit of a crush on Suzanne Farmer, uh, the starlet who's in that. You know, who did some Hammer period things. Uh, mm-hmm. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Rasputin. She did a pirate movie you know, with them. And, of course, you know, what can top a stuntman in a silver over-the-head Boris Karloff mask running around making problems, you know? And Nick Adams, you know? Yeah, he's got my Nick Adams. Oh, so what a team, you know. man, yeah. And what's that great? He's got a line in there where he says something like, it was his choice, and he made it. It's a total Nick Adams thing to say. <laughs> yeah, <I> just, yeah. <laughs> and it's always like, you know, he gets, he, he arrives in town, and nobody will take him up to the old place, you know. So he's got to walk <laughs> like 10 miles. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you probably just, you know, need to, this is generally not a good idea. It's not, it's kind of tacky, but. If you are going to see your girlfriend and you arrive in a village and nobody will take you to the old Marston place and they start looking at you mean and closing the shutters, you know, when you had. Yeah, that's a clue, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That would probably be the one time it would be socially acceptable to break up with a text. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, got here. Angry villagers <laughs> won't bring me to the dilapidated haunted mansion. I think we ought to break up. <laughs> a classic. Bye. All right, well, let's get into even some more fun. Let's uh, talk about what we're talking about today. What brings us together today? 1932's Dr. X. 
uh, I had a blast watching this. Uh, I was so excited to sit down and watch this thing because, like I said, it wasn't something I'd seen before. Uh, so it was a brand new experience to me. Plus, I love hearing about finding films and film elements that were once believed lost and the restoration process. As much as I love the movie, I'm even more in love with the story of how we have the movie in the form that we have it now. Definitely. In fact, it put me on the trail of um, researching this kind of film that exists in alternate forms. And, of course, you know, we always today get director's cuts. You know, we always get variants. But a movie that exists where they shot two versions of the movie at the same time with uh, two different cameras, two different cinematographers, same director, but basically it's the same film, same cast with alternate takes. That's extremely rare in my research. In fact, the only other instances that I found examples of that. And again, I, you know, if, if somebody knows some more, please fill me in. The first example I found of that is the Douglas Fairbanks movie, the black pirate in which he shot a color and black and white version. Oh, okay. And I know, like myself, you're you're a cinephile, and you like the history of Hollywood and movies, and like you mm-hmm. say, all these lost prints and things. What's interesting to me is that the advancing of technology and everybody not being up to grade, you know, in the theaters and things, and the problems with technology and the challenges of technology coming into cinema, that you know, was the spur that made these things happen. In the Fairbanks case, it was because the color process was so crude, right? Or or Mm -hmm. the way you made it, you know, like I think physically laying films together to get your overlays. You know, there were times I think that the film would buckle in the projectors. So he shot a black and white version along with the color. And only pieces of the black and white version survive of that. The most fascinating case, and we've talked about this briefly before on Facebook, uh, is The Passion of Joan of Arc. That Uh, one, that whole story, there could be a movie made about how that movie survived. Yes. and the Fascinating. and, And the weird parallels of like the one print burning up like Joan. And, right? and being found decades later in an asylum closet where, you know, people have always wondered, was Joan hearing things from God or what, was it her mental health? And where did they find the film? In a closet right. in an institute? Yes, these weird parallels. But the fact that for a long time, the director had assembled an alternate cut of his alternate takes and it was still a masterpiece. Yeah. You know, again, it was a technological, tech, what am I saying? A tech, I talk pretty someday. It was not a <laughs> technological need, but it was a need of, hey, our movie burned up. <laughs> you know, we need something. Right. And we got six bookings in Pokeepski, you know. <laughs> what can you yeah. Do? yeah. So there was that need. And then they were trying – that was one way they would try to resolve this issue of technological challenges because silent era is pretty easy, you know. You just send mm-hmm. your movie out and have somebody do proper translated intertitle cards. Uh, but with sound coming in, that was a challenge. And, of course, we, we monster kids you know, immediately think of the Spanish Dracula, uh, right. which has its own amazing 
Uh, thank you, David Scow, you know, <laughs> for traveling to sure. Cuba to find that great reel with some of the creepiest vampire women I've ever seen, you know, outside of a yeah. Yorga movie, you know, <laughs> coming at you. So that's fascinating. And then they did a, a Cat in the Canary version, similarly. I guess they shot it at night like they did Dracula. Mm-hmm. And But other people were doing it in non-genre films. The, over in England, there was a movie called Atlantic. And I think I think it was about the Titanic scene. Okay. Uh, and they shot like two or three versions of that movie with like two or three different cast. Maybe there was some star lineup. I don't know, but they would, you know, depending on the foreign language audience, they would change it. Anna Christie, Anna Christine, Anna Christie. Is that the name of the the classic? Anna Christie. Oh, I've drawn a blank on Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to turn in my English literature degree now because I'm <laughs> blanking on a classic. But they did one like that um, in 1930, you know, same sort of thing. And then there was a movie also in 1930 uh, directed by Ramon Navarro called Call of the Flesh. And what's interesting about that is uh, there are like three versions of that. And he didn't direct the American version. But he directed the two international versions at two different language, uh, foreign language audiences. But again, they had different casts. I guess he was the same in all of them. So again, these variants, you know, of a film, it's very fascinating to me, you know, how they were coping with that. You're getting different versions, um, you know, especially in our popular culture society where we think of, you know, the director's cut. Right. You know, there's, right. there's one authoritative version. And, you know, that's, I think, a relatively recent conceptual frame to have in human history, uh, intellectual property and things. So we get to Dr. X and, you know, we've got a movie that two different versions uh, shot uh, at the same time, uh, same director, alternate takes. And in this case, <laughs> the necessity was what? Paying off a debt to Technicolor. <laughs> mm-hmm. They had to fulfill a contractual obligation. When I was a kid, the black and white version was all you saw. It was available. And the last time I saw it was probably around 1975. Odd, oh, that, wow. I, odd that I can remember that. <laughs> but that and Reptilicus. <laughs> 50 years later, <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Reptilicus and the last time I saw the black and white Dr. X until a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah, All a, right. <laughs> Dr. X, it's a standout film, I think, at, at the time, in color, right? If you, When we set color version. And once the color version became available, I had it on VHS in the 80s, early 90s. Then you couldn't get the black and white one, you know, officially. But now, thankfully, you can on the, on the Blu-ray. Now, for my first viewing of it, I, I just put the Blu-ray in, I hit play, and it pulled up the color. So I ended up watching the color version first, and then I went back through and I kind of skipped around the black and white just to kind of see if I could pick up on any immediate differences, that sort of thing. You know, we can get bogged down in, or it's not getting bogged down because it's fascinating, but we, we could get lost in talking about you know, why there's a black and white versus a color one, why the color one was so hard to see. And, you know, Jack Warner was a jerk, but at least he saved a technical print <laughs> and you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but the story itself for this is fascinating too. I feel like it's got some really cool stuff in it. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. Dr. X is, 
I did not realize until I got to thinking and looking at doing a little research what a movie of first it is in horror film. First of all, it's from First National. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the first horror film completely in color. It is the first horror film to have a meta self-reflective moment. The kind of thing that the movie Scream made a meal of in the 90s. In this movie, when our hero, our snappy reporter hero, is leaving the waiting room of the brothel. (laughs) I don't know how to delicately put that. But but the guy, the piano player who's playing this stuff. Yeah. And when he exits, he tells him basically, and this is not the exact words, but it's my paraphrase, but he tells him, he says, basically, he says in so many words, he tells him to give him something appropriate for the subject matter of this movie. He doesn't put it right. that way, but he says, drop that Sophie Tucker stuff. Let's hear something. And, and, and this, the setup and the guy starts going, don't, don't, you know, it's very much a self aware moment, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in a horror movie. So there's another first. The first scream from the first scream queen, Faye Ray, is in this movie. Now, she may have been doing some screaming in King Kong before, you know, but, you know, that was like being made like, what, over nine months? Our first horror movie, Cannibal. Our first horror movie, Cannibal, who is an urbane, sophisticate scientist. Hello, Dr. Lecter. Uh, <laughs> and also... It's the first horror movie, or at least the first sound horror movie in that cycle, that takes place in, in an urban, big city, contemporary setting. You know, a lot of the Universal movies, you know, they're over in Europe, but it's like a fairy tale, never, never land Europe, right? Right. Right. Uh, Dracula's in London, but that's not America. Yeah. Uh, and a vampire, you know, where on earth has that taken place? That, that movie yeah. is like in a nightmare somewhere. It's an incredible film. But this is the first movie, you know, that puts uh, a monster of some kind right into an urban, very urban m- metropolitan area. You know, it, it takes the monster, you know, into the mm-hmm. most modernistic setting just about that, that you can get. Um, now admittedly, he's not a werewolf, you know, uh, he's only a cannibal <laughs> and, uh, something that I think it's interesting about Warner brothers, early horror was that, you know, their part of their, uh, shtick was the, the gangster movie, you know, uh, yeah. which was very, again, urban, <laughs> you know, metropolitan kind of thing. And these, this and Mr. The Wax Museum. You know, it seemed kind of a bit of an extension of that uh, to me, of that kind of gangster film, you know, in terms of the Malou, that where they set things. Mm, okay, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, it's very contemporary, you know, very, at the time, present, present day, uh, big city sort of thing. Whereas the Universal Horrors or the Jekyll and Hyde movie uh, that Frederick March was in, you know, they're either distant in time or they're not just across the ocean in Europe. But again, the, the you know, the universal horrors seem to be almost in a parallel universe 
uh, almost a fairy tale universe, you know, that doesn't really quite exist, you know, where you're down the street from where you're picking up your newspaper <laughs> and breakfast sure, or whatever. Sure, right. Sure. Uh, it brings the horror, horror home. So those are all first, uh, as far as my research has been able to, you know, check out again, I'm certainly open for anybody to fact check me and correct me on that. Cause I definitely want to be correct on these things. But again, I, just, I thought it was very interesting that Dr. X is making all these first. It's, it's something that I guess I don't feel like I really have considered. Like I said, I've never seen it until today. And it's just not something that I it was even on my radar as important or, or interesting or worthwhile of study. And boy, was I mistaken. Because there's just some really cool stuff in it. It's a, a combination. There's some mad science stuff happening. There's, uh-huh. you said cannibalism. There's a little bit of monster stuff going on. Uh, there's an old dark house. There's a whodunit. And it is a movie of the 30s, which I really like that kind of spunky reporter as hero. Oh, now, yeah. This guy, this guy's no Torchy Blaine. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I still kind of liked him, you know? Uh, and I like that kind of that trope, that character type as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's definitely a trope of its time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which nowadays, I mean, you know, oh, fake news, you know, whatever. But you know, <laughs> but back then, you could trust the media, right? Oh, yeah. That's that's a, yeah, he's a dedicated you know? reporter, that's for sure. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> Criming up t- paralysis, trellises to get, breaking into people's houses and, you know, uh, <laughs> doing a little bit of unethical flirting with the woman he's interviewing. But it's favorite. It's favorite. Just a little bit. Yeah, you can't yeah. flame him. Yeah, okay, come on. It was, a different, it was a different time. I mean, it is Faye Ray, who is also, you know, she's part of the early horror story, right? Yeah, she's definitely. part of, of it because of the Scream Queen status and King Kong and all that. But she did a handful of other spooky movies as well. And this is one of them. And I love the energy that she brings to this because she isn't taking any guff from anybody. She does point a gun at our hero when we first see him. Uh, you know, she's not putting up with him, but she still has this glint in her eye and this half-cocked smile uh-huh. that you can't help but just fall in love with. And she has that vulnerability, you know, that yeah. that's essential, you know, mm-hmm. and that class, that purity uh, about her. You know, just any screaming blonde in a giant ape's paw wouldn't have done it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got to have more. You know, to stand up to King Kong, right? right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, sure. So yeah, even though she's pulling a gun on him, and you know, you're seeing a little more range from her. You know, she had more range uh, than mm-hmm. you know what she did in, in Kong, but she still, you know, got that essential femininity, vulnerability, and uh, you know that that bit of you know pulling a gun. You know, that's just one facet of that character. Yeah, uh, you know, she's got a lot, a lot going on, and of course, you know, she she ought to be on her guard with that guy. You know, <laughs> I mean, he crazy <laughs> shows up in your in your house, stealing your photo out of your frame, rolling it up in his sleep. That was one of my favorite moments, though, is when she confronts him. You know, he's snooping around. He's supposed to get a picture of this mysterious Doctor X for the newspaper, so he's snooping around the house. He's 
let himself in, or he's weaseled his way in, and he's let himself into the study, and he's looting the photos or whatever. And when she comes in, well, since you've already made yourself at home, do you mind if I sit down? And, like, suddenly, <laughs> right. and, and she's playing up this whole role reversal that she's the guest, but not really. And I love the dialogue that sparks between the two of them. It's oh, yeah. Fun. Oh, yeah. That, that golden age Hollywood stuff, you know, even in, mm. a, in a movie like this that, you know, it wasn't Gable. And uh, Carol Lombard or anybody like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not the Thin Man, but it's still good. But there's know? still a quality there, mm-hmm. you know, that they're all bringing to this stuff. You know, it's oh, yeah. like truly there are no small parts, right? Yeah. You know, that's uh, true. Yeah, there's a, you know, these actors have charisma. For all the faults you can find with the studio system, it did produce, you know, a level of, you know, celebrity. And, of course, you know, I don't know if that's possible at all now anyway with social media, you know, where so many people can be stars, you know, on their YouTube channels and things, right? You know, you've just got – everybody's got so much of a social grassroots presence. Um, But you think back in the 30s, watch your media, right? The radio and movies. And I think that lack of accessibility, you know, it's just like today people say, well, they see special effects in a movie 20 years ago. And so I said, I can do that on my laptop now. Right. You know, but you go back to the thirties and I think there was more distance that you had from the whole filmmaking process from the actors. And I think that loaned, you know, some of that glamor and larger than life quality, but the actors themselves were bringing it. So the story itself, there's been some murders that are associated with the moon. And like I said, I had no idea what this was going into it. Totally new to me. So I'm watching the movie. There's all this talk about murders at the moon. And here's, you know, Lionel Outwell looking all creepy. The movie's called Dr. X. He's Dr. X. Clearly he's the killer. (laughs) No. (laughs) Right. Not at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they they try to, they try to you know he's just one of several suspects. And the way he's behaving too around everybody, and the way he's behaving around the cop, the police want to investigate him and all of his uh, associates. And as we're doing this weird kind of tour through the labs, which is a great you know sequence, especially in color. Oh God, and yeah. So you're, you're seeing it in Blu-ray, and I have to say I've seen it. I've seen it on VHS, DVD. It has never popped and been as beautiful. Is this Blu-ray? It's 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 gorgeous, almost man. a different movie, and it's also my word, man. The blood on that guy's smock when you see it in color, mm-hmm. and people have pointed out, you know, like that was a big deal twenty years later in Curse of Frankenstein when Peter Cushing casually wiped some blood on his shirt, you know, like it's no big deal, and you see that red blood, and they talk about. Uh, you know how that must have been for the 50s what about 1932 and you're seeing that it's not there's no separation of black and white right you're seeing that red blood you know on that and there's no comments made on it you know again it's just sort of casual and uh i think it would have been kind of disconcerting (laughs) to see that let alone that heart in a glass (laughs) yeah what about that man that that looked like they went down to the <laughs> slaughterhouse, you know, it was, yeah, it was a George Romero move <laughs> right there, you know, yeah. in color. Yeah. There's this bit where this guy is, he's been keeping this heart alive for how long? I mean, for a long time <laughs> through just electrolysis. Uh-huh. 
and it's sitting there pumping the whole time. And yeah, I can imagine a couple of police <laughs> who are investigating these weird, wacky murders that have to do with cannibalism. Uh, seeing this and being like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, what House of Horrors am I in now? And in House of Horrors, that morgue set or whatever it was uh-huh. with all the bodies. Uh- <laughs> oh, it was. This is going to sound weird, but I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I know what you <laughs> because it just it looked so cool, and the sets and the production design and the way the camera was moving around. There are long takes of dialogue here, and you never get bored because the set, the production design, the way everything just looks on screen, and the way it was lit, it's gorgeous, and. Man, if I had access to that set, I'd be shooting like three or four different movies in there at once. That's that's crazy. You know, let alone this whole black and white color version. I'm making several different movies here while I still got it because it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. You kind of wonder if it, you know, popped up, you know, because they would reuse stuff like that if it was in any previous movie or if. Yeah, well, something in this was a reuse. Uh, according to the internet, which knows everything. <laughs> right. What was that? You know, suppo- uh, I'm going to have to double check, but. Uh, I don't have that page open. Uh, one of the sets was a leftover set from a silent film, I believe. Let's see. Uh, the New York waterfront sequences were shot uh, on the set of 1926's Twinkle Toes. <laughs> <laughs> that probably sounds good to a cannibal. Uh, yeah. That, <laughs> lady fingers and tink Twinkle Toes. Mm. Oh, I like it. I like it. Uh, which is like this romantic drama thing with a little bit of crime thrown in. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that could, given the period, that could be the name of a gangster. You know, like Babyface. <laughs> oh, Twinkle Toes, eh? You know? <laughs> Let's get him on this, Dick Tracy. You know? <laughs> I think I have my next, I have I my next uh, pulp novel for Airship 27. Yeah, it's a, yeah the many crimes of Twinkle Toes. Yeah. He'll be like a Fu Manchu character. You know, he's, he, oh, he's wow. off stage most of the time. But, you know, my equivalent of Nayland Smith is hunting down Twinkle Toes. You know? <laughs> And, you know, talk about your mind going into a bad place, that whole singing in the rain scene in a clockwork orange. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. Look out for twinkle toes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's right. The, the, uh, in, in Twin Peaks, uh, Killer Bob likes show tunes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Wow. Yes. Right. <laughs> Chris. Be watching for um, those, uh, the next major publication from Minor Profit Press. There you go. There you go. Vengeance of Twinkletoes. <laughs> the Vengeance of Twinkletoes. Yeah, there you go. I like that. I read that. Um, <laughs> uh, so he he is, you know, Leona Atwell is Dr. X. He does have some interesting ideas, but nothing overly sinister. In fact, he wants to help the police figure out who the killer is uh, by using science, by, well, what could almost be mad science, but <laughs> using science. Uh-huh. He drops all sorts of techno babble or whatever when he brings the scientists out to his wherever it was, like this place out in the middle, you know, away from everybody. And he's got tubes and wires and lights and smoke and switches. And <laughs> um, 
I have no idea how any of that was supposed to work <laughs> other than it was like a very high tech lie detector. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of, yeah. A lot of it was for effect. <laughs> I guess it's just, uh, you know what it makes it, it just struck me that it makes me think of those different context of the Hodgson uh, character, Karnacki, the ghost finder. Uh, mm-hmm. You remember he brought ghost, but he had all his electronic devices and stuff. He would bring in. To, yeah. yeah. Of course, this is more, you know, uh, down to earth, <laughs> I guess. Kind yeah, of. Kind, yeah. yeah. It's a little more mundane type monster. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just a cannibal. Come on. <laughs> this whole process is set up. Dr. X, Lionel Atwell's character, Dr. Xavier. Like, I'm going to do my own investigation. Wouldn't it have just been cheaper to let the cops sort this out at this point? No, we've got to go out to another building away from everybody. We've got to set up this weird, almost proto-steampunk thing. You yeah. know? <laughs> We're going to put on little shows. We're going to put the maid in the outfit of the last murdered victim. We've got wax statues of the other ones. Uh, weren't really wax. It's just people, you know, actors they put in there. But yeah, whatever. We've got, we've got you know, the just- Rockets are doing an opening number just in. And, and, uh- <laughs> Before we reenact the murder of the scrub maid, as she lost Delta's right. in her bed. Yeah, it's got a whole little like, grand gignol or whatever kind of weird yeah. thing. It's quite the setup. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it is totally, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's totally Hollywood, but it's incredible. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, some of the colors in this, the reds. You know, oh, the man. red really struck me as just beautiful, the hue. And that's never come through to me before, seeing this movie like in three different versions on this Blu-ray. And, I mean, you talk about mm-hmm. pure pulp come to life. Those machines and that setup with corpses, you know, standing there or, you know, wax images or what are supposed to be. Yeah, that is right off of a Weird Tales cover. From oh, the top. Sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's that's uh, that's that's great stuff. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to see it in color for the first time after having seen it seen it in black and white, because you get all those lovely you know, green lights and the red hues and the red fluid that's bubbling up. And oh yeah, you get all of that. You know, after having just watched it in black and white for so long, and then suddenly seeing that. Yeah, the, the people who who pulled it out of Warner's attic or whatever. Of course, it would have been in bad shape then. Well, on the Blu-ray, they talk a little bit about that. There's a little bit about the restoration and what they had to do. And it was originally it was a nitrate print that they found. And the worst parts of the print were the real changes, the ends. There were some spots where they just couldn't do anything and you have to skip a frame here and there. Uh-huh. You know, I do a little bit of cleanup with the movies that I show on the weekend in the Monster Kid Movie Club. But man, what they worked with and how it ended up looking at the end miraculous man well there again think about seeing it in color in 1932 on a big screen Gosh. yeah that i mean you know they'd the color had been around but it'd been used for like musicals and i think uh that was part of how this movie got made was that the musical color musical craze was dying out and warner mm-hmm. brothers was stuck with two films you know that got its wax museum and this one they're actually companion films with the same lead actors and director marco cortez and uh, yeah mm-hmm. and uh they uh that's why that happened but you know color in something called twinkle toes you know except for my, my <laughs> twisted version you know i dare say it's going to be a sight different than in dr x when you got a bloody smock and a heart pulse and you know in a jar and having just seen i mean i think it seems like i've heard that people were 
even disconcerted in the Jamesville Frankenstein the year before of just like hearing the dirt hit the coffin or something, you know, that that was enough to cause sound was brand new. And I guess just maybe the associations, if I've got that right, that, you know, the idea, but you go from that to this, you know, in color and blood smeared on the smock. And this is a rough movie. I'm kind of jealous. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. I'm kind of jealous that we don't have those firsts with film. Oh, yeah. I'm a little younger than you, you know, and I'm not making an, an age joke here. But, I mean. Dude, when my, me, when my grandmother was born, Queen Victoria was on the throne. And that's a fact. <laughs> uh, All right. So, me and old timers <laughs> like Micah. No. And, 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 my labago starting to get to me a little bit, Sonny. <laughs> can, can we hold off here a minute while I yell for some kids to get off my lawn and I'll get right? <laughs> but, like, where do we go now? We, we have color movies already. You know, we're in color. And, yeah, maybe they sound a little bit better, but it's, you know, just better sound. We've already had sound, you know. I'm just trying to imagine being a moviegoer and living through going from black and white to color or living through going from silent to talky. Uh, or, or whatever, you know, or the first 3D stuff, you know, how do you, man, I, I just, I wish we could have some of those. That'd be amazing. Well, you know, also when, you know, I don't know, I imagine it's the same for you. I imagine it's the same for about anybody. I think even when you're a kid, you don't see these movies the same way. I think that when I was watching like a Harry Housen movie, when I was 10 years old, there was more wonder to it, you know, to me as a child, because again, I'm processing it, right? There's just something recapturing, you know, um, a sort of good good naivete, you know, when you're exposed to this stuff. And also not having anything to compare it to. Jurassic Park, I don't know how well that's held up. Uh, I, I saw a clip from it with the dinosaurs running, and it was like, it's so obvious they're on a cycle now. But when I saw that in 92, 93, uh-uh. You know, I felt like I'd seen dinosaurs, <laughs> right? You know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it had that impact. I heard when King Kong came out, I've heard of people being afraid that he was outside the theater and getting out to go look, you know? Yeah. Okay. Because, again, we can't imagine seeing something like that, like you're saying, for the first time having that first experience and that was radical you know that was just totally something stunning and shoot i can remember when vcrs were a big deal you know just being able to tape your own program you know and come back and see it (laughs) you know people like i say you know i grew up with tv I, i can't appreciate what an event and phenomena that was the science fiction writer william gibson uh, one of the pioneers of cyberpunk uh, wrote that fantastic novel Neuromancer, uh, which is just incredible as a piece of literature. But there's a documentary he talks about technology and how we're getting all very matrixy and stuff. He talks about how when they had a TV in their house and the only thing that was shown was like a test pattern, people would come over to the house, right, to, to look at it. Because that, and again, you know, yeah, how quaint, right? But think about it, you know, that was astonishing, you know, for people at the time. So, yeah, you know, to be able to go back in time and not just see these things with the the Sid Grauman audience who saw King Kong, but to see it the way they saw it, you know, 
that would be amazing. I feel kind of bad because we haven't really talked a lot about the movie itself, but I feel like the movie, I mean, it's a good story and it's fun and I recommend it, but I just feel like it represents so much that I get even more excited about that. And I think we said this at the very beginning. It's how the movie even survives to this day is fascinating. Oh yeah. You know, it's such a unique film and story of how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there is a story, um, you know, they're behind it. And I, and I think, you know, for people like ourselves, you know, who love cinema and love film, that's a legitimate form of entertainment itself, you know? Yeah. It's definitely one worth having on that disc. Definitely one for cinema fans, horror movie fans, uh, classic horror, if they haven't seen it. Uh, it is, a like I say, you know, a, that list of firsts I read off, you know, it's a significant film uh, in that regard. And it's a lot of fun. That it is. It's a, it's a cool little mystery and trying to figure out how everything, you know, comes together. It's just, it's cool. It's based on a stage play. It feels like it is. But all that means is that you get to spend some awesome time in some incredible sets, you know? Uh, I could see a production of this happening today and having as much fun with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could uh, just uh, have totally immersive theater, right? Just strap down everybody in the audience. <laughs> wow, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Yeah, a little Thornton Wilder, Our Town mixed in with... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, with 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 the uh, you know the Moon Killers stuff and, and and like you say, even though it has it has those great stages and things, it still is very um, it's not stagey the way like you know Dracula gets criticized. So yeah. it's very yeah, yeah. still it's very cinematic. And I, I was saying earlier about how it's the first film where you get that very modern, contemporary, twentieth century urban setting, but it's kind of a transitional feel. Because that's only the first part of the movie. You were talking about the house they go to, you know, the old dark house. Mm-hmm. And boy, I mean, is that like Transylvania, New York City? You know, <laughs> I mean, you got that great mansion on the cliff side, you know, with the, the river or ocean. And they drive you up by carriage, right? It looks just like Renfield driving up, you know, John, uh, 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 being driven up by Dracula. You know, and, and, and that's a very interesting choice there, too, because they sort of depart, you know, from the modern era and, you know, take a little step back. So it's interesting to me, too, as sort of a transitional film, you know, from those more remote horrors of the early days to where horror started, you know, happening. You know, if it's a Stephen King story, the vampire lives next door, you know, <laughs> in the ba- in his basement. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. that, you know, that kind of, of thing, you know, or the, the horror is right there uh, in the in the neighborhood. <laughs> I think Stephen King said something about the vampire who works at the 7-Eleven or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting film. And the, the villain's motives are very interesting, too, you know. He's a bit altruistic, you know, I mean, I love that a lot. He's like, ah, what did it matter if a few people had to die? You know, but I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, cure, uh, you know, replace missing limbs and stuff. So I guess, you know, the moon killer is kind of a glass half full sort of guy. Ain't he? <laughs> yeah, a few people had to die, you know, I, I, you know, chow down on a couple, but Hey, you know, <laughs> synthetic flesh. And what a great monster. You know, to me, he is scarier during one of that great transformation scene. There's a point where he hasn't put the fright wig on and he's got like a pinhead shape. 
you know, it comes up to a point. Do you remember that part mm-hmm. in the transformation? Yeah. Yeah, he's more frightening then. It, it, but, you know, they, they take it further. And also, to me, always, there's a scene there where you got this, you know, where you're looking at, I don't know why there's a plate of water there, <laughs> you know, with mist on it for us to get his reflection. But it is. <laughs> and there's a part in there to me where, honestly, you go back and look at Derek. He looks like Bela Lugosi in the 1950s, around the time he was doing something like the Black Sleep. Uh, every time I see that, I think this guy looks like, you know, Lugosi as an older man. I mean, you know, his face is not all, you know, lumpy like that. But he does he does look quite uh, quite different. And we've talked about the actors, you know, Preston Foster. You know, he had, he had mm-hmm. a career after this. Yeah, I think he was in Shane, unless I'm mistaken. He wasn't Shane, but I think he was in Shane. Uh, I think he was, um, speaking of Fay Ray and King Kong, of The Last Days of Pompeii, another Marion C. Cooper, uh, Ruth Rose production. I think Preston Foster was right. added just a few years later. Yeah, so um, he, he does okay in the in the film. It, it is very super. When he starts you know, freaking out, you know, going into full madman mode, you know, his expressions are okay. They're a little reefer madness, <laughs> diabolic in his eyes and things. But the monster's really original, and he has a you know original look. And the fact that mm-hmm. Max Factor, you know, <laughs> studio with the glamorous beauty makeup made this thing, that's quite uh, you know quite unusual uh, creature. Yeah. And again, I think you know with, with Warner Brothers, they they were doing something kind of different. You know, like this time, either cannibalism had never been treated. I think that's right, or it had been you know not done much, as opposed to a werewolf, you know, or a vampire. You were getting quite a variety, you know, of creatures <laughs> in the early days. They yeah. just didn't all go out and imitate Frankenstein, and you know they they sort of did it their way. Yeah, so it, it's definitely definitely. Uh, one worth worth seeing, and we're, we're really so lucky to to have it. And we can get them on Blu-ray, and uh, it's just one disc. It's got both versions on it. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so people can go buy their own while helping to support Monster Kid Radio as well. And there will also be links in the show notes to Minor Profit Press Thank and you. some of Micah's books as well. Micah, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for being here. Thanks for downloading the show. And if you wouldn't mind, please consider retweeting tweets, sharing posts on Facebook, letting people know about the podcast. If you want to send them anywhere in particular, though, just send them to monsterkidradio.net. That's where we've got everything listed right there in the show notes. Everything we've talked about here on the show. Links to Micah Harris's books. Links for you to pick up your own copy of Dr. X on Blu-ray using the Amazon affiliate link actually helps us out a little bit, too. And I want to thank everybody who's using the Amazon affiliate links to do their Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you anything extra. What it does do, though, is take a couple of pennies off of Jeff Bezos's pocket and puts it into Monster Kid Radios, which is something that we really, really need to focus on right now because I'm going through some life changes and finances are not where they need to be on a personal level. So, yeah, if you could help out the podcast, that would be amazing. Speaking of which, we do have a Patreon now. I haven't updated the Patreon in the past few months, and I'm not going to yet, but the beginning of August, everybody can take part in a Patreon poll. I'm going to be putting a poll out, not just about Patreon stuff, but just about listenership 
in general. We were talking at the Monster Kid Movie Club, or maybe it was the Astronomy Club, about how to grow the show, how people found the show, what they want to get from the show, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's been a long time since I've actually opened things up for a poll like that. So we're going to do that at the beginning of August. Stay tuned for that. It will be on the main website at monsterkidradio.net. And, of course, I'll mention it here on the show, as well as on Facebook and on Twitter and on Reddit, and on our Discord. Links to all of that in the show notes as well. What's coming up next week here on the show? Oh, man. We're going to be talking about a movie from the 1970s. We're going to be talking about the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. From deep space, the seed is planted. Terror grows. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Certificate X. Now showing London Pavilion, classic Oxford Street. Okay, go ahead and give me grief. It took me forever to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one. I am so glad that I finally did, but guess what? I've never seen this version of it either. So I'm actually, as soon as we're done recording here, I'm going to go sit down with some lunch. I'm going to pop in the movie and I'm going to watch it because later this afternoon, I'm recording with Jonathan Inbody about the film. So that's going to be fun. That's going to be happening next week here on the show what's coming up on saturday at the monster kid movie club that's our twitch stream that we run every saturday from 11 a.m till 7 or 8 p.m at night whatever ish you know uh specific time we show nothing but monster movies scott morris has an amazing pre-show Kenny will sometimes do a visual, a video, look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and there's usually a theme, and the theme this week is the Olympics. Yeah, I'm tying all the movies in in a very roundabout, cheeky way. Head over to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. I actually have a video there now that you can watch to understand what I'm talking about. It's going to be a fun time. And then on Tuesday at the same place... We're going to be showing chapters 7 through 12 of the serials, The Black Widow and Federal Agents versus The Phantom something or other. Government Agents versus The Phantom Legion. That happens on Tuesday, about 3.30 is when the pre-show kicks off. It goes till about 8 o'clock at night because at 8 o'clock we switch gears and Jeff Pollier joins me to talk about an episode of Star Trek. And this Tuesday we're going to be talking about the Star Trek Voyager episode, Phage. Or is it The Phage? I don't remember. I guess I'll have to tune in on Tuesday to find out. You're welcome to join us for that as well. It's all free. It's all online. And it's all a lot of fun. We just need you to be there to make it even better. So please join us for that. I can't think of anything else to go over for the show. So just on a personal level, I want to say thank you for all of the support and the messages and the you know, virtual hugs and everything else that I've been getting for the past few weeks. I've talked a little bit about this on the show. I've talked about it on the stream. I've talked a little bit about it to some people in person, but there are a lot of changes happening with the finances, with my living situation, with everything going on. And it can sometimes feel pretty overwhelming to me. Uh, in fact, this week's episode is a good at least 14 hours late. It was supposed to be available to you first thing Thursday morning, and it's, as I'm recording right now, 12, 16 p.m. on Thursday. I hurt my back somehow. I don't know how, but I've got this awful muscle pain uh, right underneath my right shoulder blade. It's a muscle thing. You can feel the knot, or at least that's what I'm told. I can't reach it. It's a part of my back that I can't reach. And sometimes that's really bad. Um, this morning I woke up, and it was hard to breathe deeply without it hurting. Uh, I've been taking some Tylenol, but 
I got to be careful with how much pain medicine I take because the pain medication throws my tinnitus out of whack and uh, man, it's, it's awful. And if there's one thing a person who works with sound doesn't need, it's constant ringing in the ears. Also, yesterday I had a flat tire and I had to change the flat. And because I'm a bigger guy who's out of shape and I have plantar fasciitis in one of my feet, well, both feet, but worse on my left, all that squatting and kneeling and all that really flared that up. So I'm not in the best of shape today. So what I've done is uh, I've looked back at all the messages that I got over the past couple of weeks about what's going on and to kind of draw strength from that. So thank you for giving that monster strength to me to keep the show going. I do appreciate that you all seemed pretty receptive to me kind of sharing a little bit more of my personal non-Monster Kid Radio production life with you guys and gals. And I'll probably start doing that on a semi-regular basis because I consider all of you friends. And having y'all in my corner just helps so much. And I want to be honest with my friends, you know, so I'll keep everybody up to date. But let's go ahead and put this episode to rest. It's time to get it edited and out to you guys and gals. Hopefully I can get it done within the next 45 minutes. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song. Gimme Gamma Ray. That is copyright 2018. King Gargulas. It's from their EP. Dr. Gory is a tiki. You can find them at kinggargulas.bandcamp.com. That's K-I-N-G-A-R-G-O-O-L-E-S.bandcamp.com. Of course, there's a link in the show notes to go check out their EP and all of their other releases. Check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 